And he said, I'll, I'll read this quote. He said, God said he would go before you and make your crooked places straight. That means he's going to smooth things out. He's going to make your life easier. What Joel Osteen is saying, um, that is a rosy horseshit way of having people <laughs> not take accountability for their own lives and their own decisions. Welcome to episode 40 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brewed pint or maybe a fine wine. You can watch us live Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern at pubtheology.com, and you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. And now you can even catch us on the New Thought channel, which is available on Roku, Vimeo, Vimeo, YouTube. Where can't you find us is the real question. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsors, including Craft Beer Cellar. Craft Beer Cellar is the home of premium craft brews whose primary focus is amazing beer, education, and hospitality. You can visit Craft Beer Cellar, that's C-E-L-L-A-R.com for a location near you, and you can even win free beer from Craft Beer Cellar by joining our conversation. You can comment anytime during the show or even during the week on Twitter or Facebook and use the hashtag PT Live. You can even call in and leave us a message, a voicemail at 980-PT-LIVE-0 or 980-785-4830. And our newest sponsor, Wink Wine Club, that's spelled W-I-N-C. Wink features superbly crafted wines delivered right to your door. So you can get started at trywink.com um, backslash PT live. Is that a front slash or backslash? That's a front slash. I think it's just a forward slash. slash. Forward slash. Um, PT live for $20 off your first order and for other savings. And it's important that you do that slash PT live so they know that we sent you. Exactly. And uh, Ogan was sharing some of the different wines that he's had. I guess he's been a member for a couple of months and had a really has had a really great experience. A lot of varieties uh, to fit your tasting preferences at uh, Wink Wine Club. And I, I joined as well, Brian. I just got my first one a couple weeks ago. And yeah, they, they have some pretty excellent wines. And they um, you do a profile right when you go on the website and you can um, pick out like it, they, they judge by your taste in certain things, um, what, what your taste in the wine will be. It's pretty cool. Excellent. Excellent. Well, tonight we are joined by guest Casey Banks. Casey is a United Methodist pastor starting a new faith community in Vancouver, Washington. Can't wait to hear about that. And she's a recent graduate of Duke Divinity School. She is passionate about creating safe spaces to explore Christian community and spirituality. And Casey's even going to be launching a Vancouver pub theology group next month. So we're going to be chatting tonight a little bit uh, about what such safe spaces might look like and why they're needed among other things. So welcome to the show, Casey. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here tonight. Absolutely. And tell us what you're drinking. So I brought a little bit of home with me. Um, this is a St. James winery from St. James, Missouri. It is their apple pie sweet wine, a seasonal selection. 
not sure it qualifies as a fine wine, but um, it is something that I have been very much looking forward to. Um, you can't get it out here. Uh, it's not sold anywhere, but um, on a recent trip, I had some shipped out here, so that was really nice. But yeah, apple pine. Apple pie to enjoy the season. Casey, have you tried it warm? No, that hadn't thought. Ooh, that she'll hadn't be right back. On me. <laughs> that, sounds like glass. Some, that sounds like something that would be, that would taste really good warm. That does sound good. Next time you and I hang out. Sounds good. There we go. Well, my name is Brian Burkoff. I am the pastor of Holland UCC in Holland, Michigan, and the author of the book Pub Theology, Beer, Conversation, and God. And tonight I am drinking a Rochester Mills Toasted Marshmallow Milkshake Stout. Oh, nice. It is, describes itself as Michigan's best bonfire beer. No open flame or pointy sticks required. Wow, how does that taste? So I don't know. It's going to be s'mores in a glass, I guess. Uh, we'll find out. Uh, and joining us as usual is Tina Simmons. Welcome, Tina. Hey, how's it going? Um, tonight, I was going to open a bottle of my Wink wine. However, uh, my throat is really scratchy. So my apologies ahead of time if I don't mute myself fast enough um, if I end up coughing. But I'm drinking a hot toddy um, with Jim Beam in it because that, uh, that's always good for your throat. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're glad you're on the mend. We missed you last week. So welcome back. Thank you. And for listeners wondering, Ogan is currently in his home country of Barbados and uh, having a little bit of relaxed time, but he's also uh, attending the funeral of his grandmother who passed away recently. So our thoughts and prayers are with Ogan and family. Um, and he is currently on Facebook texting me and giving me a hard time for the long pause before I started speaking in the intro, just so you know. <laughs> that guy. Can't yeah. get rid of him. <laughs> it's all about the editing magic for the podcast, you know. I know, the, right? <laughs> the, the video is just, it's just real life. Yep. So first sip, uh, yeah, some marshmallow there. It's kind of a toasty stout, a little marshmallow. Not bad. Not super hoppy, right? Stouts aren't no, hoppy, No, it's not, not hoppy at all, nope. Okay, because that would just be gross. Yeah, that, that would be bad. So our opening question... Uh, Casey, you're just joining us for the first time. It's usually a fun one, and tonight we're kicking off with, if you could magically gain one skill without working for it, you could instantaneously have it. What skill would that be? I spent some time earlier today thinking this one through and uh, ruled several out, and I decided that I would want the magical skill of instant memorization. Um, I'm a big fan of theater, and my background's in theater, and I use a lot of dramatic elements for worship. And of course, when preaching, um, you know, sometimes it's nice to be able to memorize things. So instead of working to memorize that, I think instant memorization would be great. Absolutely. That, that's a good one, Casey. But I'm sitting here thinking that means you have to work to forget certain things, too, then. <laughs> well, maybe, but I think it could Unless be it's selective. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can choose the things you want to memorize and remember perhaps sure yeah just have this mental table you put it on there when you need it push it off the table when you don't perfect tina what do you think instant new skill you know i, I thought about this long and hard um and i think you know because i i'm super artsy and i love to write and stuff but one thing i never did was learn an instrument and i think if i could instantly develop any skill i would love to be a killer saxophone player mm. That would be awesome. 
Yeah. Or to dance because I'm just so uncoordinated. It's not funny. <laughs> but the sax first. <laughs> Absolutely. Sax before dancing, as they say. <laughs> I guess they don't say that. You got to have music to dance to sometimes. There, yeah, there it is. Thank you for True. saving that one, Casey. Thank you. <laughs> yep. There Very you good. go. So uh, I did not give this a lot of thought, but off the top of my head, I think I think I would want to be able to speak like five new languages just instantly. Oh, that's a good one. Do you yeah, have a I mean, I don't want to get which languages. I don't want to get greedy and and <laughs> say like all the languages, but um, yeah, so probably uh, French, Arabic, Spanish. Uh, Turkish. I know a little bit of Turkish, so I guess that's one I've got half a skill at. Who Dutch, knows Turkish? German. How do, you, how do you not know other languages, but you know Turkish? Like it's not usually <laughs> something you teach in, teach in school or you develop. Well, I had I had some French in high school, but then I lived in Turkey for a year, so I did some oh. language training and study, and you know, over that year, got got a bit of conversational Turkish going. I won't say I was I was far from fluent, but but I enjoyed it, and you know. I like communicating with people from different cultures and the whole idea of pub theology is, you know, taking different perspectives and coming together and communicating, but language can be a barrier if you don't speak the same language. So I would love to be able to just instantly have a few new languages in my repertoire. I don't know, Brian, I put all this thought into mine and you didn't put any thought into yours. And I think <laughs> I, I want to switch over to yours now. <laughs> you right, a great one. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, Maybe you can magically gain two skills. <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> so, uh, Casey, mm -hmm. you are starting a new faith community. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. So I came into um, this church appointment kind of as it was getting ready to take off, but the church that I'm hosted in had already done a lot of the legwork. So I am at Vancouver First United Methodist Church, and this is a church that decided that um, they wanted to help create new spaces for new voices, um, especially for young adults and people currently outside the church. So they partnered with our conference and are um, kind of funding this new project for a few years to kind of see if there's a way that we can better reach um, folks for whom church doesn't currently make a whole lot of sense. Um, so my job primarily for the first year is just to get to know the local Pacific Northwest culture because I'm new to this area um, and to start meeting people in the community, um, learning some of the other community organizations, other churches, um, finding out where the local hotspots are that young people are hanging out and um, just start building friendships and seeing if in any common interests on faith or community service kind of emerge. So um, I'm about six months into the project and um, I'm about to enter a new phase where we actually start gathering groups together. And the first plan is going to be a pub theology group because um, I met Tina through one of these community organizations. We're both CASA members um, advocating for kids in the foster care system. And we found out we both had an interest in having um, conversations over beer and wine. So um, that's how I wound up here, just simply through that networking process and um, trying to trying to find ways to gather people around the concept of storytelling. That's kind of my main uh, focus right now is getting people together to share um, a fun story about themselves. You know, not just simply your name and 
what you think we want to learn about you, but something that's interesting. So for example, um, Tina and I are meeting with a group of uh, young adults um, this coming Sunday, and I've asked them to bring a small object with them to tell a story about. Um, I've done this once before with some other groups, and it's surprising what people will, will reveal about themselves um, pretty deeply, pretty quickly when you ask them to participate in show and tell, because who didn't love show mm. and tell in, in elementary school? No doubt, no doubt. Well, I love I love the sound of that. Oh, well done getting out in the community. Uh, as someone who has uh, been a church planter in several settings, I know that's a big part of it is, is networking, meeting people, as you said, getting a sense for what is this community and area like, what's happening, what isn't happening, and how can we create a space for people that maybe doesn't currently exist or is a little different than what's out there. Uh, so I, that sounds great. So what, what object would you bring, uh, Tina, if you uh, come to a storytelling night that Casey's hosting? Well, if Casey's okay with it, I was actually going to bring my book because to me, my book symbolizes yeah. my journey. Um, it, uh, it's, it's a fantasy fiction, but if you know me, you can really pick out the parts of me and my journey that I've been on. And um, because it, it was really what, I don't want to say pulled me out of my shell, but pulled me it because I've always been pretty social, but it, it pulled me out of my comfort zone so much that it basically was the stepping stone to transforming my life. So nice, nice. I would bring my book. I, I love that idea uh, of having that object because it's also like a little comfort thing. You know what I mean? Like if you just say, okay, tell us a story about yourself. I think a lot of people might kind of like freeze up or what do I say or how do I say it? But if you have like, this thing that that connects for you it's like this little um i'm not gonna think of the word but it's this little connect this touchstone almost of oh yeah you know this is what i'm here to talk about and here's how it connects and you can show it off so i i think it's a fantastic idea focus. yeah what about you brian what would you bring oh man good question what would i bring got lots of different rocks from different places we've traveled um could bring my back brace from the time I broke my back. You know, there's lots of wow. lots of options. Uh, <laughs> my microphone. I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Or maybe I'd bring a Bible because I I love the scripture. I love studying the scripture, and I love understanding it in new ways and and thinking about it in new ways. But you know what? Actually, I'd probably just bring a beer. <laughs> and they'd say, "Oh, sorry, Brian. That group makes two doors down." <laughs> What about you, Casey? Are you going to bring something? I am. Um, so I'm not going to give away that particular item, but I was thinking about another one. Um, in my closet right now, I have these two little figurines of two My Little Pony characters, um, Rainbow Dash and uh, I think it's Fluttershy. So my nieces are huge fans of My Little Pony, and they introduced me to the concept. And... Um, I thought a couple years ago that it would be a great theme for a church camp to do with little kids, um, not just little girls, but, you know, boys too, if they wanted to come. Um, so I'm still waiting on an opportunity to host a My Little Pony theme kids church camp, but I would like to do that. And these particular figurines that I have, I bought them because I like to take um, interesting objects and turn them into earrings. So my plan for them is to create earrings out of them. Um, and uh, one of the kiddos that I'm, 
um, working with in Casa is is a fan of My Little Ponies as well. So that's something that is going to be going in my take along bag whenever I visit them. So nice. that's kind of a significant item in my life right now. <laughs> Children's toys. There you go. Love it. Love it. So when you talk about creating a safe space, I think the understanding is that many people are not experiencing safe spaces, particularly when they think about church or spiritual community. So I'm wondering, either of you, what is your sense of why people aren't feeling safe at church? Uh, and yeah, what have you experienced or, or heard along those lines? Sure. So my experience with safe space in a church came out of two contexts. Um, one, I was interning at a church where approximately 40% of our members were members of the LGBTQ community. And these were folks who um, had grown up in church, some of them, or they longed for a faith community, but either a previous church they were a part of had kicked them out or just could not accept them or repeated the phrase, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. And they just couldn't really wrestle with the fact that they, you know, were or were not welcome there. Um, so they made their way to this rural church in North Carolina um, where people were commuting 45 miles or more um, to attend this little oasis um, where they could be themselves. And um, we even had one member who crossed a state line to come to this church. And um, they found that you know, we, we even had some conservative voices um, from rural North Carolina who were passionate about this church, who made this church their community because they realized that, um, you know, a church wasn't a church if it didn't welcome everyone. And it's okay if we can disagree on some politics things, but it's not okay if we're not loving our neighbors. Um, so that was one of the contexts I came out of. And the other one was a church I was uh, interning at another year where um, – the church was small, it was dying, it was an older congregation, and they decided to revitalize by serving their immediate neighborhood, which for them meant the homeless population. And so not only did they begin serving um, on a daily basis this homeless population, but their congregation became approximately 50% or more um, folks experiencing homelessness as well. So they would serve breakfast on Sunday morning Folks could come in and sleep on the pew Sunday morning if that's what they needed rather than a sermon. Wow. Um, and every day, every evening of the week, they could come and get a hot meal that was offered by a rotating group of churches. And every morning there was a, a space in the church designated called Turning Point Ministries, and they could come. Um, they could store their belongings securely. They could use the Internet. They could get breakfast, um, take showers, do their laundry. And it was just kind of this this place where – people had one thing in common that they were struggling with housing security. But other than that, they were from incredibly diverse ways of life. Um, and so the concept of safe space not only was like a shelter idea, but also people from all different faith backgrounds, you know, Catholics, um, atheists, agnostics. We had, um, I think maybe one person who was a different religious belief, um, a lot of Pentecostals, and then they were all being, cared for in this Methodist house. So the question of how do you how do you minister to people um, when you have all those different perspectives there and not and not reject that because they've received enough rejection in their life um, yeah. that a lot of the ministry was just listening to them and you know affirming where they were at that stage of their journey. Beautiful. 
That that is beautiful, and um, the fact that they were opening to, open to listening to them, you know, instead of trying to convert them or change them, is um, that's beautiful. That's where people feel safe is when they feel listened to. Um, what city was that in? That city was in Columbia, Missouri, at Wilkes Boulevard United Methodist Church. Because we have nice. a friend, um, Hugh Hallowell, that he has a community like that in Raleigh. So I was just curious. <laughs> yeah, that was when I was home in my home state of Missouri. All right, the show me state. Well, I think that's a beautiful uh, way to do that kind of ministry with people who are on the margins of uh, housing security and homelessness. Uh, and I've seen too often, you know, Christ well-intentioned Christian ministries who will require you to listen to a sermon or hear a, Bible, a gospel presentation before they'll feed you or before they'll allow you to stay there. Uh, and to me, it just feels like they're taking advantage of a person's um, fragile state and their needs to sort of force their religious um, agenda and desire to convert upon them. And that just doesn't feel right, you know, and it doesn't feel safe, I think. And as you said, it was, uh, it, you experienced that people of different traditions showed up. I mean, that says a lot if an atheist can feel safe at a, a church-based shelter like that, or a person from another faith tradition, or a person from another Christian tradition. I think that's beautiful, and that's how it ought to be. Well, and, and Brian, what you said about how, you know, if, if they're forced to listen to a sermon or do something to get the meal, um, it's going to do the opposite effect that that's then is intended because they're just going to look at the church even worse. You know, they're going to look at the church like there's demands before you get anything. And that's not, that's not the whole point of giving and receiving and the flow of love. Hmm. I've yeah, heard of some churches around here even who are doing um, basically the opposite where they're doing a dinner church and the idea is you come as a community, it's based in a neighborhood and have a dinner um, at one hour and then if you want to stay the second hour then it's a worship service. Um, so it's completely optional and you're well fed and um, you know it brings people together if, if that's what they want and then they can choose whether or not they want to stay um, and some churches are having a really good success with that. I like that. Yeah, and I think that's that's absolutely the way to do it because there's nothing wrong with preaching or having a worship service or sharing your beliefs, but it's when it's sort of held out as this, you know, you have to do this and the food or the shelter is, is sort of the carrot that to get you to do the religious thing, it's completely backward. And as Tina noted, really, it may do more harm than good. And so I'm, I'm really encouraged to hear about your experiences um, with to, sort of turning that around and saying, no, let's have safe space where you can just eat. You can just be and have your need met. And if you want to join us with that, this other thing, you're welcome to, but it's totally up to you. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I think that's beautiful. I don't know who quipped it, but maybe um, either of you have heard it, but there's a phrase out there that, um, you know, sometimes when you're trying to, to, to tell the gospel to someone, sometimes the only way they can hear it is through bread because they're so hungry that the only way they can receive God's love is through physical nourishment or through the warmth of clothing or some other basic human need that they need to survive. Well, and, and I think that's that's twofold. Yeah. Um, first of all, if you're in survival mode, you that's the level you're at. Like yeah. you're just thinking survival. You're not thinking anything beyond that. Um, but the second part of that is that genuine loving human connection of somebody giving 
something to you without expecting anything in return. I mean, that goes so far. I agree. I agree. I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, in my own, um, experiences in creating safe space in, in, um, new, new church communities, uh, we've experienced, um, atheists worship, worshiping with us, um, Muslims, uh, people from different faith traditions or people who are just kind of seeking, just kind of like tiptoeing back into spiritual community or church and one, you know, wondering, yeah, maybe I, maybe I want to find a community where I can grow and deepen in my spiritual journey. And we certainly haven't done it perfectly, but I think I feel encouraged when the, the space feels safe enough that someone who often is classified as other, whether it's, um, you know, gender identification, um, sexual orientation, religious background, or non-religious background, or whatever it might be, um, financial, economic status. But when they feel like, no, this is a place where I can just show up and be me and not have to conform to any number of things, I think, I think we're, you know, we're on the path to, to something, I think. Yeah, and I, I think stuff like um, that Casey is starting, that's the stuff that's going to get us there. You know, the organizations right. that uh, are listening to people and getting them, meeting them on their own terms, that's what it's going to get us to, you know, being connected. Absolutely. And so uh, I, I think, you know, the work of creating that safe space is vital and, and needed. And um, I'm excited to hear about how your story unfolds. And I wonder how you imagine that might intersect with um, also becoming a community that begins to do some work around justice or around seeking the common good of your your region because i think initially there's just this sense of we need to meet people and and gather and and have some spiritual goodness you know what i mean we just need to kind of grow and and be fed and and have that space and then when do you sense that maybe out of that might grow oh wait how are there also some ways where what we're experiencing can overflow in our city beyond us. Maybe could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, for me personally, that's something that I like to do right from the get-go. Um, my understanding of scripture is that Jesus was always going back and forth between um, you know, escaping to the mountain to be with God and then going back down in the valley to serve people. And um, there was always a combining of spiritual learning with with ministry. So, you know, one second he's doing a sermon on the mount, and the next second he's feeding five thousand people. So, for me, as many times as I can, um, I want to um, add some kind of community service project or um, social justice awareness learning something with every time that we gather. So, for example, um, in November I gathered a. A group of pe about 11 people for a young adult gathering and we we did worship we had a passionate communion service um, but in the middle of it in the middle of the worship time we went to another room and we packed care bags um, designed to give to folks who are panhandling on the streets um, and then we brought those back into our worship room and we consecrated them at the end of our service and so it was a way to make sure that Christian worship is not separated from Christian service because to me, um, I really like what the scriptures say about faith without works is dead. And so for me, it's, it's infusing those two right from the beginning. Um, and I think for a lot of young people, you're more likely to get them to sign up 
for an event that goes out and helps people than you are to get them to do some vague spiritual learning thing. <laughs> right. I'd rather go do something than, you know, sit in a classroom and learn something. Um, yeah. And you know what, what? What does that say about our younger community, too? I mean, that's pretty cool that they'd rather go out and help people and, and be engaged and be involved than, you know, that detached learning. Gives me hope. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well done. I think that's uh, beautifully put. Uh, and I think you're exactly right. As we look at the life of Jesus, he was always engaged in holistic ministry. Uh, you know, as he declares the kingdom of God is at hand, as he begins his ministry, you know, he's instantly out there, uh, not only teaching, but healing and um, creating wholeness and feeding and, and those kinds of things. And so I think you're example of integrating worship and service is, is a beautiful model. And I think, as you said, that's going to connect with people. Uh, at the same time, it's doing the things Jesus invites us to do. Yeah. So a question, um, does God, in either of your opinions, want to make our lives easier? And I'm asking that based on a comment or actually a sermon clip that a friend posted recently from Joel Osteen, a famous preacher in, uh, in our country. And he said, I'll, I'll read this quote, he said, God said he would go before you and make your crooked places straight. That means he's going to smooth things out. He's going to make your life easier. Get ready for the harvest. Get ready for the breakthrough. You're coming into an anointing of ease. All right. I'll let you go first, Casey. <laughs> any, any, uh, any, any response to that? So I, um, I wanted to go straight to the source to figure out where in the world he pulled this from because that was not, you know, one of the scriptures that I had memorized in my traditional <laughs> Sunday school growing up. Um, so I googled, you know, God would go before us and make our crooked places straight. Um, and it's from the King James translation of Isaiah 45. And the context is... Um, Israel is praising Cyrus, um, the king of Persia, um, because he has come into power after the Israelites were in the Babylonian exile. And all of a sudden, the king of Persia is really friendly to them and is like helping them rebuild their temple. And so they're they're praising this foreign leader um, and making the argument that God is actually in control of this foreign leader um, as he is protecting the oppressed and vulnerable Israel. Um, so in that context, Joel Osteen's comment didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, it sounded very different. Um, I get why it's appealing. I mean, everyone wants, surely everyone wants um, a God or a religion where, you know, they're going to make your life easier and they're just going to rain down blessings upon you. But, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus died for what he did. Um, <laughs> right. Money and prosperity yeah. did not fall at his feet. Um, right. it, it led him to death. Um, mm. So I think it's, it's hard when you, you know, you want to, you want to take these promises in the scriptures that were written for other people and apply them to your life. And I think that's a, a balancing act. Um, mm. These stories teach me the, the nature of God's character and from that, I get a better sense of maybe what God wants for me personally, but I don't think God is going to be going down and plowing down my political enemies the way that the Israels were, you know, praising King Cyrus for. Yeah. Uh, Tina, any any thoughts to this 
this oh, idea yes, of God I, making life easier for us. I have very strong opinions about this. Um, Casey, I don't even know if you know this, but I'm I'm not a Christian. Um, I have a, um, a lot of respect for the Christian religion, and I, mm-hmm. I grew up Christian. I studied the Bible, and um, I, I definitely respect the stories. Um, but what Joel Olstein is saying, um, that is a rosy, horseshit way of having people <laughs> not take accountability for their own lives and their own decisions. I'm sorry. Um, mm. It takes everything out of our hands and says, oh, God's going to do it. God's going to make our lives great. So what does that say about the people that go through really rough times then? God doesn't love you. Sorry. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that's what they would say is that, you know, well, that's a sign that your faith is not strong. And that's a- abusive in my mind. Exactly. It's damaging. It's damaging. Yep. Abuse is a great word for it. Yeah. And uh, well, Casey, you're a, you're a preacher after my own heart to go to the source like that and say, well, where is he pulling this from? Uh, and I think, as you know, when we're dealing with the ancient scriptures, uh, there's a lot going on there. And they were written in a context, in a historical reality, uh, often far different from ours. Of course, written in a different mm-hmm. language to people from in a different setting. And so very helpful for you to bring that out to us and and set up that that history for us. And it's just very different than what the way he is using it in our sort of Western American capitalist society where people, yeah, we have struggles like people of every era, but it's not at all the same situation. And then to say that God is going to, to flat out say God is going to make your life easier. Like I almost, you know, choked on my coffee when I, saw that earlier i just that to me as you said that feels like the opposite of um how i understand the call to follow jesus not that god is necessarily going to make my life harder but i feel that Mm -hmm. he calls us into the harder places yeah absolutely um i mean the the most i would go with this interpretation is to say i i firmly believe that god desires good things for us but that is far from synonymous with easy or smooth that's right and so my friend who posted this it kind of surprised me because she's you know a very thoughtful person and uh doing some good work and it just surprised me and so i pushed back a little and and the way she framed it the way this spoke to her was in the last year she's feels like she's gotten clarity on her life's purpose and mission and what she should be involved with as to her work and her career. And since she's had that clarity, it feels like things have begun to line up and she has more energy, that kind of thing. And so I, I totally get that, you know, we each have unique gifts and passions. And when we tune into those, there is a sense in which there's a flow to our lives and there's an ease to it in terms of we enjoy it and we want to invest ourselves in it. Yeah. But I'm not sure that's what Austin is saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's, you know, some studies have shown there is a correlation between, um, you know, living by some sort of moral code, whether that's religion or something else that, um, you know, it's, it's cheaper um, to live to a moral code. It's, it's more expensive to live a life of, um, you know, selfishness or, you know, guilty pleasures. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a correlation that when people start participating in a, a religion or something else that oftentimes life seems like it gets easier. Um, but in a lot of ways, there's got to be some additional challenges that, you know, living a, a lifestyle that kind of goes against culture, um, or at least in theory goes against culture. Um, right. That's 
that's bound to bring some additional tensions to your world. No doubt. And I think, you know, if we think about, as you said, the life of Jesus and as he's out there doing what he's doing, healing people, teaching in ways that go against uh, the established authorities of the religious system of his day, as well as um, larger political things, look where it got him. As you said, you know, it got him whipped, flogged, beaten, and ultimately killed. And he's saying, come follow me. <laughs> yep, and there's a room up here for you too. Yeah, and incarnate this kingdom. It is going to cost you something. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to take the Ogan unity route on this one and say if we look at God as a creative force um, and God's going to create for us whatever we're, you know, like we're co-creating our lives, um, if we look at it that way, and I, Ogan better still be listening because he's probably like on his fifth beer by now. Um, <laughs> if we look at it that way, okay, God wants good for us, but God's going to give us whatever we decide we want, you know? So if we decide we want goodness in our life and like um casey said you know like that that's kind of a moral code too if we do good you know if we follow that easier path if we follow the ten commandments it's a little bit easier life you know it's it's one of those things that you know if we head down a path that is good doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen every once in a while but we're going to have the attitude to handle them we're going to have the community to help us through them a lot better and they're not going to be so hard life will not be so hard and and that's how i see us you know god is more of a co-creator with us not that he's paving the way but that we're doing it together if that makes sense yeah and i think along the lines of what you're saying that yes if we live our lives in a, in a certain way that's consistent with the moral principles of a, a certain faith tradition or just wherever we're drawing those principles from we are going to avoid maybe some some headaches than if we just do whatever we want or live in this sort of inconsistent morally ambiguous way yeah we're, we're going to have a lot more headaches if you know i decide that i'm going to you know, go out with five different women every week, even though I'm also married. Yeah, that's going to make life harder in a different <laughs> way, right? Yeah. But I don't think that I don't think that's the invitation that um, that God is is calling us. It's to yes, have those moral principles, which maybe provide a platform or a consistency to then be able to step into those broken situations in our world where people are just you know trying to get by in a part of these larger broken systems where they didn't ask to be born into poverty or they didn't ask to have uh, a nation bomb their city. It's their reality. And the question of Christians is how are we going to step into that for healing? It sure would be nicer if, uh, if this were true though, you know, if God did just come in yes. and magically make everything smooth for everyone. Um, oh my gosh. He would have to be schizophrenic <laughs> because everybody has an idea of what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. So a quote that I came across, uh, of course, yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day in which we recognized as a nation this great civil rights leader who was also a pastor. And he had this quote that he gave, he spoke to uh, the Fifth General Synod of my denomination, the United Church of Christ, back in 1965. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said, although the church has been called to combat social evils, it has often remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. How often the church has been an echo rather than a voice, a taillight behind the Supreme Court and other secular agencies, rather than a headlight 
guiding men and women progressively and decisively to higher levels of understanding. So I think what he's sort of saying, the church is often lagging behind on these moral issues of our time, whether we're talking about slavery or women's rights or any number of issues. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is so if, if faith and religion are supposed to enlighten us why does it feel like so often we're sort of behind? Hmm. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I feel like in a lot of those examples you named, um, the church kind of had a split personality through those situations. Um, so like abolitionism, um, there were churches on both sides of that, both of them using scriptures um, to justify their sides. Right. Um, you know, when it comes to women's rights or, or even women in ministry, there are churches on both sides using scripture <laughs> to justify their points. Um, I'm hoping that that has way more to do with humanity than our God or our scriptures. Um, but I think there's definitely a human tendency to believe that that you are right and to find your evidence to support that you are right rather than um, coming at it with no pre preconceived um, notions um, and discerning something from it. Um, but that that's hard. That That is the one thing that makes me cringe about being a Christian because um, you know that this, this body of people throughout space and history um, has let you down and has occasionally given you a really bad reputation. Right. Um, and darn it, that's hard to fix when it's done so many things. It is, but it's, it's fixable because um, Christianity is changing, <clears throat> excuse me, um, for the reasons you said, you know, women are becoming ministers and whatnot. And, but if you look at Christianity a hundred years ago, it, it was um, white male ministers and it was, I mean, we still live in a very patriarchal society. So why would they want it to change? You know, they're, they're, you know, I'm sorry, Brian, but they're kind of yeah. in a, a very um, privileged role. And, you know, changing that is kind of a threat to them. So of course they're going to find scripture to support their position to be able to stay in that role. And nobody else is threatening that role then. Like they get to be the privileged one. If, if that makes any sense, oh, there's yeah. a, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I think whenever there's uh, power, people uh, work who are in power work to preserve that power, work to preserve those benefits, work to keep the status quo. And I think that's exactly the dangerous place for the church to be. You know, as G which is so different than its origins, as um, the church was this small band of followers of Jesus, and then these small um, communities in the diaspora and the larger Roman Empire, they were the little guy, they were the oppressed under the larger empire. But third and fourth century, the church becomes, Christianity becomes the religion of the empire. Suddenly, the, everything flips, and they're in the place of power themselves. That's a dangerous place to be to try to also be a prophetic voice because suddenly now you're defending your, yourself, you're keeping that power, you're not looking out for people on the edges. And I think we've seen the church kind of up and down on these issues throughout history and it can be a little frustrating. But I but do I, think it's going in a good direction, Brian, because 
you know, Casey's a minister. We have black ministers. We have churches that are, are mixed cultures and, you know, mixed populations and are listening now and are standing up and saying, this is not what we want Christianity to look like. This is not what Jesus intended Christianity to look like. So I think it's definitely in a good direction. I would agree. I would agree. And I think uh, there's a lot of signs of hope of, uh, sort of what I would call a socially conscious awakening in the church. I mean, it's always been there, of course, but sometimes it's been harder to see and harder to find. Um, but I'm finding more and more people who are who are moving toward uh, some of the vision that Jesus and the prophets uh, pointed to. The tradition I was raised in, uh, just to give an example, did not ordain women until the mid-1990s. And so I, you know, as a kid growing up in the in the eighties, you know, we had no zero women preachers. That was, I was always taught that's a horrible thing. And you know, that <laughs> women don't have those gifts and the Bible says that's not their role. And, uh, and thankfully now that's changed, uh, in that denomination, which I'm no longer a part of. And then, but then they currently, on, let's say the LGBT issue have this, what to me feels like an archaic view, which sees, um, people of non-heterosexual orientation uh, as having, uh, what's the word? I'm not going to think of the word offhand, but they see it, it almost. It's kind of, it's that language, right? It, it's almost a deformed sexuality. And that is such, I just feel such a harmful view to me. To I mean, I understand where they're coming from and there's a few verses they want to cling to, but I think in the larger picture of, the scientific assessment and even of the scriptural assessment of those texts and of Jesus impetus to love and welcome everyone. I, it just breaks my heart to see whole denominations still hold, still being the taillights or actually driving the other way. Yeah. My denomination has been fighting for, uh, that issue for about, I think it's around 40 years now. Um, it wasn't really, in our consciousness at all until about 40 years ago when someone um, realized that, oh, we might accidentally um, ordained, um, you know, people in same-sex relationships if, if we don't put a rule about it. And then we made a rule about it. And um, we've been going back and forth for that for decades now. Um, and in my denomination, it's a, it's a global denomination, um, and we are declining in the United States, but we are growing in places like Africa. So um, when you bring our global leaders to the table, the, the viewpoint is changing one way in America, but globally it's changing the other way. So it's a really interesting tension. Um, and my um, United Methodist um, church is, is trying to figure out how do we move forward when we are definitely on opposite sides here. Um, it's it's looking harder and harder to reach across the table and trying to be creative, but we get tripped over our own bureaucratic red tape that we've created, and um, it's really heartbreaking um, to not have the freedom to to do what you believe is right um, because there's you know there's systems in place that try to um, prevent you from doing the ministry that God calls you to do. Um, I'm fortunate to be in this conference now. Um, I have colleagues who are going through the journey of ordination with me who would not be allowed to be ordained in other conferences um, in the world or even in our uh, country. Um, and I 
am less afraid of being penalized if I perform a same-sex marriage here than if I were to do that somewhere else. I would definitely lose my credentials elsewhere. Um, but I have that opportunity here because the Pacific Northwest is awesome. Yeah, it is. That's, well, and that's beautiful. <laughs> and I think, you know, your role and people uh, in your position who are a part of institutions still struggling to, you know, come to perhaps a new understanding or a new position on some of these issues, you know, you're creating an outpost, a safe space within that context, uh, within that umbrella of the larger institution for people to feel welcome regardless of their orientation. And I think that's beautiful. And I think we'll speak gospel hope to people as you do that. Uh, and I think that was the position that I found myself in as well as a pastor for 10 years in the denomination that did not, um, did not have a great view on that issue among others. And we just found we have to be true to who we are and create the kind of community that we feel God is calling us to that Jesus modeled. And if we're going to get in trouble for that, well, so be it, you know, <laughs> let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. So there's a famous, uh, Quote, I said we weren't going to get to all our topics, but we're, we just might do it here. We're chugging along. Clown through. We're, we're, we're getting it done. Uh, there's a maybe one of the most famous quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. where he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think we we use that quote in times where we feel like we feel despair. We feel like justice isn't happening. We say, okay, let's just scale out and look at the bigger picture. Hey. It may, it's going to take some time, but we're getting there. And I think now is such a time, right? We've got uh, inauguration of a new administration happening this week. A lot of people are feeling some anxiety, some despair. We might want to pull out a quote like this at a time like this. But I also heard another speech of Martin Luther King's recently where he says, we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. In other words, it's not going to happen automatically. He says it comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. So I, I guess I'm all that to say, I'm wondering your sense of, of all of that. And is God working things out toward a better end? Is that going to happen regardless of our participation? That God's just going to work it out? Is God inviting us to be a part of it working out? What do you guys think? Well, from a Christian perspective on life, um, I see no example in the scriptures of God coming in and magically saving the day without the co-participation of humans. Um, my understanding is that from you know the beginning of times that God intended to partner with us um, to bring good into the universe. Um, I I interpret his quote that, you know, the, the moral universe arc bends towards justice as in, um, if we're willing to fight for it, we, we have everything we need, um, for love to win the day, um, that we have to show up, we have to be willing to work, but that if we're willing, um, I hate battle imagery, but but if we're willing to show up in this battle between love and hate, um, not between people, but between the forces of love and hate, that love inevitably has more power to win. Um, hate's pretty strong, but love is stronger. Um, so to me, that's why you know it's the arc is bending towards justice. Um, it's not a hard right sharp turn. Um, 
Yeah. You know, I guess sometimes it feels like we have to help it bend. Yeah. <laughs> right? Push it over. Yes. Well, then, I think we help the speed of it hmm. with that. You know, I, I think it's, it's spiral dynamics. You know, we keep circling around, but every time we circle, we get a little bit better. Um, and uh, it's exhausting. But I think the more conscious we are about the decisions we make as a society, the faster we go forward. Although sometimes it may feel like we're going backwards. Um, sometimes we're just dredging up stuff that's there that we're sugarcoating and we need to face before we can move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I saw a cartoon from The New Yorker where there was a couple of panels and on the panel on the left was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. giving a speech and saying the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward. And then in the next frame was, was Donald Trump hunched over with a few of his cabinet behind him. It bends toward just us. Oh, <laughs> that's powerful. It, it felt like, uh, oh man. Any There's unbalanced some... society is bound to collapse. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, I think a lot of folks in, in this time are, are feeling, feeling the stress and the anxiety, but also I think feeling the call to get involved and to say, how can I, as you said so beautifully, Casey, how can I stand on the side of love? How can I work for justice? How can I speak up now more than ever uh, for people who are perhaps under threat in new ways uh, for what may unfold in the next four years? And I think we really do have to think creatively about that and not just stand back and say, well, God's going to fix it, which I think sometimes we're tempted to do. Right. And, you know, this, I think I grew up with this view, uh, which had a not a huge focus, but it was always there on this idea of, the second coming and Jesus coming back and making everything okay. And I think that view can lend itself, even if we don't want it to, toward that idea that, well, God's got it under control. It's going to work it out. Jesus is coming. Mm -hmm. We just got to hold tight, hang in there. And it adds to complacency because everybody's like, yeah, we don't have to do anything. We just have to be good. We only have to worry about ourselves. And, you know, we'll leave here in the rapture and everybody else is screwed. It's not our problem. Yeah, there was um, a Facebook meme I saw the other day that, you know, it kind of said that the problem I have with all of these political conversations right now is I don't know how to convince you to love someone other than yourself. Um, and that's kind of the biggest challenge of this is that I I don't know of any social justice movement that was achieved purely by those who were oppressed, like they needed allies and they needed people who were already in positions of power to realize that um, maybe they shouldn't have all the privilege and maybe they need to march or walk hand in hand with some others. Um, a lot of this, in my opinion, just kind of boils down to um, pride, um, selfishness versus selflessness and, um, man, if we could just get that one thing figured out, um, how many problems would be fixed? Well, that, and I, I think it's very narrow-minded um, of the people in power because, um, like I said before, like any society that is this unbalanced is bound to collapse. So they're creating their own collapse as well. Like if, if yeah. they can't, you know, see how narrow this is and how, you know, if they keep oppressing people, 
you know, if, if our society keeps splitting like it is, we are bound to collapse. It, it's, it's history over and over and over. So to mm -hmm. not be able to see that and to keep being like, oh, we're the privileged ones. We're going to sit back and just do whatever we want. Not, not, not for long. It's not sustainable. Um, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I'm not one of them, so I don't know what that looks like, but I imagine that, you know, some of that must be denial. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really easy um, to take the the privilege I, I do have that I know that I have and, and just assume that, you know, well, things will, will work itself out. Like, even if it's bad, it'll, it'll get better. But um, that's not always going to be true um, if, if I don't step into this line and, and do something um, to help those um, who are even less privileged. But, yeah, those who are in, you know, positions of political power, um, I guess maybe in a way, if you insulate yourself enough, then it will seem like it's a sustainable system, but there's going to be a day when they are really, really surprised. Um, and it's not going to be good for anyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think you, you highlighted a couple of important points and, you know, um, recognizing what, what privilege we, we might have, uh, wherever we are. Uh, and you know, for me, I feel like it's a long list as a, you know, cisgender white heterosexual, male who you know isn't necessarily poor um i feel like there's a number of ways in which i'm in a position that i can't really complain about but i think the invitation is to hear the voices of people at all different levels of our society who are feeling and are actually under threat and to hear those voices and to then as you said casey how can i be an ally you know not how i can not how can i save you or how can i be you know, some benefactor, but how can I learn from you? How can I be an ally? How can I work together with you for a more just society? I like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I like that, Brian, because it's not like we're coming in to save the day. We're not a bunch of superheroes. We're coming in to understand and to support. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, we are approaching the end of our hour. Um, I think we had some good thoughts there at the end, but any final word from either of you on our conversation tonight, which has taken us from magically gaining new skills <laughs> to creating safe spaces to thinking about how to live and work toward justice. I'm good. <laughs> Casey, it's all you, Casey. Um, <laughs> yeah, just that, you know, we are we are in a, a time of human history where it is easier than ever to make our voices heard um, through through different mediums, you know, online and um, elsewhere in the world. And don't give up that opportunity to to share your voice in, in whatever social justice issue is important to you. Well said. well said. Well said. Great to have you on the show tonight, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you, friends, for tuning in to Pub Theology Live. Please connect and spread the word on social media. And don't forget, you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes, or the New Thought channel. And if you'd like to find a, a, or create a Pub Theology gathering in your town, you can go to pubtheology.com and check out the map there. And soon you'll find Casey's group there out in Vancouver, Washington, yes. starting in February. So check that out if you're in her neck of the woods. And thanks again to our sponsors, Craft Beer Cellar, who you'll find at craftbeercellar.com and wink at trywink.com slash PT live. So until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing.
tweet from Thomas in regards to a um, skill that he could gain instantaneously. He said he would love to sing well. Oh, <laughs> wait, I'm kind of with him there too. <laughs> so Tom, keep keep singing even if you can't sing well, but you know, maybe one yeah. day sing you'll, in the shower. You'll, you'll sing, sing in tune. 